Welcome to the Chuck Shoot Podcast. My guest today is Wiley Arnett, guitarist from the band Sacred Reich, and also the owner of Rehab Burger here in Scottsdale, which is a really popular restaurant, um, not only known to Arizona locals, but it's also gotten a lot of national exposure on USA Today, Food Paradise on the Travel Channel, uh, many more. But uh, yeah, his band, I first discovered Sacred Reich back in the high school days watching this show on MTV called Headbangers Ball. Because um, when I was a kid back in the 90s, there was no YouTube. So if you wanted to watch heavy metal and hard rock videos, you had to stay up late on Saturday nights. Uh, so they would do this thing called the countdown to the ball from 11 p.m. to midnight. And that was like the top 10 videos of the week. And then from midnight to 2 a.m., they would play heavy metal and hard rock videos. And I remember seeing the video for the song Independent. And I thought it was such a great song. I thought it was in the same league as Metallica, Anthrax, Megadeth, all those guys. And so I bought the CD. Uh, fast forward years later, and I'm talking to my cousin, uh, Will Pitts, who I've also interviewed on this podcast. Check out that episode if you haven't checked that out before. He's an Emmy, win Emmy award-winning journalist. But anyways, I was talking to him, and he's a big fan of Rehab Burger. And he mentioned that he uh, knew the owner of Rehab Burger and that he was in some band. Uh, and then when he said Sacred Reich, I was like, it all came back to me with the, the video on MTV and the CD. And I also remembered they were in the movie Encino Man. And, uh, and when I was doing my research, I also found out a lot more. I got some great stories from Wiley about not only his musical career and touring with Motorhead and Pantera, but also how him and his friends from Oregano's, it was a popular Arizona pizza place, how they opened Rehab Burger, how the whole thing took place. Uh, so enjoy this episode with Wiley Arnett. All right. Well, welcome Wiley Arnett, guitarist from Sacred Rite and owner of Rehab Burger. We'll get into all that stuff. It's true. Good to be here with you. Yeah. How are you doing? If I was any better, I'd be you. Okay. <laughs> wow, that's did a good you, one. Did I'll you say Sacred Rite? It's Sacred Rite. Sacred Rite. What did I say? I thought I heard right, but right. It, yeah, it might, it might just. How do you be say it? Ear. Sacred Rite. Yeah, Sacred Rite. Rite with a yeah, yeah, yeah. The C C uh, R E I C H. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Made it made more sense when we were sixteen. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you you grew up here in the valley in Scottsdale, Arizona, right? Yeah. Okay, and then you were. You were influenced by Leonard Skinner for music, but then it was really Randy Rhodes that inspired you to pick up the guitar. Uh, it's true. I had some family members, so I was introduced to the guitar on acoustic, and uh, what was popular back then was Leonard Skinner. So I learned a lot of that to start with CCR, you know, open chords, that sort of thing. And I had some uncles and cousins who play, so got a lot of instruction and influence from them. That's what they were doing. So of course, that's what I did. So how old were you when you when you picked up the guitar then? Um, twelve. Twelve. Okay. Yeah. So at the time, this is in the '80s. So it was like you said, it was a lot of like Scorpions and Rat and Dawkin and Testament. Later, I all guess. true. Once yeah. once we kind of got through that acoustic introduction and we started to figure out, uh, you know, what we were into, it ended up being the more modern rock of our day. And those were certainly the bands that were happening: Judas Priest and. You know, uh, I always love the the expressive guitar solo. So you know, Matthias Jabs and Scorpions and Glenn Tipton and KK Downing from Priest and um, Warren D Martini and uh, all of those guys. George, right. George Lynch, Dawkins. Were you into Metallica? Because they they were they were around. Their first album was eighty one. Yeah, I, so. I wasn't at the front of the heavy metal thing. So Metall oh, okay. Metallica was there. I remember I had some friends who were transitioning from punk rock into heavy metal, thrash metal. Yeah. And I, I wasn't quite getting it. Huh. Uh, um, a lot of the guitar players were reckless in those genres. 
and I was like kind of aspiring to be more disciplined and thoughtful. Yeah. I did like whammy bar dives. I look back at it now and I'm, you know, I'm not sorry that I had an opinion that steered me in a new direction. Sure. But I couldn't imagine, you know, Slayer with a Ingve on guitar. It just wouldn't make sense. <laughs> part, part of the yeah. appeal is like, a, you know, I imagine a coloring book crawling outside of the lines and you know, the, the mad dive bombs. And, you know, it's not hyper analytical or disciplined. It's reckless and off the rails, you know. So, so uh, back then it was irritating because I was really trying to be disciplined. I was working with metrodomes, alternate picking, you know, trying to really just be a matter of fact player. So I wasn't much inspired by that. But as the years went on and uh, got into a thrash band and um, started to meet all these people and, you know, you, you mature a little bit, you, so, rec- you recognize yeah. it had to be that way. You know, Rain and Blood wouldn't have been ne- right. nearly as cool with a super thoughtful soloist. <laughs> <laughs> well, so were you taking lessons then or the, was this stuff with the metrodome and all this uh, self-taught? It was mostly self-taught. Wow. I, I was I was getting great tips from people who went ahead of me, but I wasn't really sitting down with, okay. uh, with you know, taking appropriate lessons. So and then did you go to Coronado High School down the street here? I did. Okay, that's it. I worked there for like a year. That's kind of interesting. There was also that mo- that school was in uh, the Bill and Ted's movie, and it's true until they tore it down. And but they kept up the mural. That's, right, right. So you can still see a little piece of that. Yeah, I think that uh, I interviewed the Gin Blossom singer. I think I think they went. Through, no, maybe the uh, the guitarist or somebody from that band also went okay, to Coronado. Yeah, I didn't but is that, that where you met all the guys? Uh, that are in yeah there were the four of us uh, okay. we, we were all there we were like a grade apart Phil uh, bass player singer was the youngest so when he was a freshman I would have been a sophomore although I had already dropped out <laughs> oh really <laughs> yeah freshman year freshman um, year you dropped yeah, out yeah I walk around with an eighth grade education <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah I've been, that's amazing uh, for all the things that you've accomplished though so yeah well I've got a disciplined mind I just wasn't a, a <sighs> If, if, if I'm uh, interested in things, I become obsessed and it's amazing what I can get done. And when I'm not interested, then I just fail horribly. So I've been real fortunate in surrounding myself with things I'm interested in. And then I tend to excel. Um, wow. I don't mind reading and doing the work. I just got to be driven. Otherwise, I'm like. So what did you do for those? Were you just in bands and doing music during that time? Your parents, the parents let you do that? My parents wouldn't give me that choice. I was living with my mom and uh, she was not uh, in love with the idea. (laughs) I had a couple of uh, family members who, who helped me in, in talking to her just that, Hey, he, he is applying himself. Mm -hmm. You're not just your average 14 year old talking about playing guitar. He's already put in several years and he's excelling past, you know, people have been playing five years. He's competitive already. Mm -hmm. So there was some evidence that, that maybe I can make something of it. And then I had to just make a commitment that I would use that time to be disciplined. I wasn't going to be sleeping all day and partying all Mm -hmm. night. So I had needed to show her for a little while. Mm -hmm. And then she saw that I literally would play six and eight hours a day. She'd have to come flip on my bedroom light and six to eight hours a day i went through wow you know, it wasn't it wasn't for years but it was during that time just before we got a record deal where i was kind of i felt i pressured myself a little bit that while everyone's at school i should be doing something yeah yeah and um i had I'd gotten a busboy job at the salad bar which is right up the street here it used to be there in that uh 68th street and thomas Right there and there. Oh, it used to be called the salad bar, but it was, that was the name of it. That's not a very creative the salad bar. The yeah, salad yeah. bar. Okay, it was the eighties uh, vegetarian craze. Okay, they, they had lavash and. <laughs> so you formed the band uh, with the guys from Coronado, and then uh, Flotsam they, and Jetsam was was a big. Uh, that was a bigger uh, band at the time. Um, they helped you out a little bit in those early days, and they're famous, obviously, for their bass player Jason Newstead, who went on to be 
uh, and Metallica. Sure. So you guys know Jason, he helped you out a little bit? It's true. Um, the, they had formed the band. I remember seeing Sacred Reich before I was in the band, and they were kind of a thrash metal cover band. Mm. And uh, Flotsam and Jetsam um, was the first ones. I remember they were called The Dogs. And we went to Alternative High, which is the old Apache Elementary School, which I went to mm. for kindergarten to sixth grade. But then they closed it, turned it into a high school for alternative. People were having challenges in traditional school. They could have smaller classes. Long story short, at night, there would be bands playing there. And I remember going to see the dogs who would become Flotsam and Jetsam and being confused by the whole thrash metal thing and uh, aspiring to, like, being excited that here's people I'm growing up with and going to school with who are doing things, so yeah. that, that's good. But I somehow I've got to find my band, like my, yeah. own, my own little rat or Dawkin or something. So and, how would you describe thrash metal to people? Because I think a lot of people just say, oh, Dawkin and Metallica, it's all this, everything's heavy metal. So how's thrash? I mean, I know in my head what thrash metal is, but how would you describe it? it looking back, I would I would say that, you know, Rat and Dawkin were pretty much glam metal. Um, mm-hmm. It got turned up from there to Poison and more more hairspray, more eyeliner, more bandanas. Mm-hmm. But, but, <laughs> but before that was them. And they were, you know, the spandex and the eyeliner and, and the, the butt shaking and girl chasing and some really great guitar players. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so so that's what was driving me there. It really wasn't the spandex. Um, but uh, very long story short, uh, Sacred Reich was a band. They did a demo tape. They wrote their first four um, originals and created a demo tape. This was around the time Flotsam and Jetsam had just been signed to Metal Blade Records. I believe it was about 85. And uh, they were on a a compilation record, Metal Massacre right. 7. And then yes. the feedback from being on that record was positive and it led to a record deal. We had done the demo tape and Jason Newstead was actually working for, you know, working the new Flotsam material. And he had come up with a college radio mailing list before you could buy a book that told you to do this sort of thing. Okay. Like he was really innovative and in, in kind of cutting, this is how you break bands. Yeah. And he understood that he, his best traction would come from college radio. So he was sending huh. his own tape out and he felt weird because the other side of the tape was blank oh. and he burnt our demo tape on the back of his own, huh. which immediately started creating attention. All of a sudden we're getting email or not email. We're getting mail in a PO box from Ohio college. Hey, you guys have some more material. I'm interested in featuring you on my radio show. And we realized that, you know, college radio was a big thing back then. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, Cause now when I was in college radio in the nineties and I was a DJ at the, but that you had to play, like it was not metal. Like, I don't think they played any metal. So that back in the early eighties, metal was kind of a, it was an alternative thing. Yeah. I think there were multiple thrash, stations yeah. and we were, you know, obviously communicating with the more metal ones. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, so going back to your first question, you know, yeah. glam metal, Heavy metal, metal, thrash metal seemed to be a bit faster and a little bit outside of the lines. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to me, I think like Slayer, Rain and Blood is like the blueprint for thrash metal. It's a little bit of punk mixed in there too, at least for your band too. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. Like when I listen to Ignorance, I pretty much hear all the riffs we stole from Slayer, which that was our first <laughs> record. We were like 17, 18, 19 and 20 yeah. years old. Um, we had never done a record before. So our pockets were full of all the songs we had learned. Um, Phil is a major contributor on writing and a huge Slayer fan. So um, that's where a lot of that influence came from. But even today when I put it on, 
I think that's probably true with all musicians. Everything they play, they know where it came from. Yeah. So sometimes it's hard huh. to listen to things objectively. Okay. Because everything I've ever done, I know where I got it. <laughs> okay. Interesting. So yeah, tell me, take me to that part because, like you said, you're on the Metal Massacre compilation, and then the, the Ignorance album. It was the same year. So what came first, the album, and then you put that song on the Metal Massacre? Or? It was the compilation record. The demo was out. The band was starting to get attention, and okay. the, their then lead guitarist, Jeff Martinick, a good friend that we all grew up with, I knew him well. Uh, he went to the army or navy or something. He, he went. He joined the military, and they came to me in a pinch because. They were getting attention. Mm. They needed a lead guitar player. I know you're not into this kind of music, but oh. can you maybe help us out for a little while until we figure it out? And I'm like, well, let's see. And I'm like, I don't know. I was kind of hesitant. And then Phil shared with me a Testament record. And he goes, hey, I know that you. one of the things you get hung up on is the guitar playing on stereotypical thrash music. He goes, check this guy out. His name's Alex Skolnick. And I, listen, a guitar player. I listened to that and I was like, ooh, all of a sudden the, the, the heavier, I could identify with the heavy stuff. It's just mm-hmm. I, I didn't want someone to expect me to just hit dive bombs during the guitar solos. I wanted to be, you know, be more thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And he certainly was. So it, it kind of turned me on a dime right then. I'm like, I think I will do this. And there's an opportunity. I'm like, can I rewrite some of the solos that, that, you know, on the demo hmm. and stuff? He's like, just make it your own, man. Wow. So uh, early in, we wrote another song together called Ignorance. It was the first song that we wrote with me and the band. And we added it to the demo tape mm. and kept marketing it with the new song. Okay. We also re-recorded the title song, uh, Sacred Reich, okay. which existed before me. But I changed up some of the solos and kind of made it my own. Mm-hmm. And we added those two tracks to the demo tape and started working that. Blossom and Jetson was doing a showcase. We know now that they were already being an offered being offered a traditional record deal they had already it was like 85 they went on metal massacre 7 and then metal blade was coming back to see them live to talk about a possible full-on record deal they had already made up their mind they were going to offer them a record deal but they still called it a showcase hmm. so showcases where when the labels come in town yeah, and they, I've heard they, about pull out, they, they print up a big backdrop and you spend extra money on a light guy that night yeah <laughs> and you just try to come off as pro is as that you can. stressful though being that young and is there the pressure does that get to you or does that like you rise above it or how does that work i think it's like any kid who had a talent contest or a play at school yeah. you know there's some preparation there's some anxiety i feel stupid yeah is this going to be great but all that practice six to eight hours a day has got to that's got to pay off at this point then uh sure i didn't really i wasn't uh i've always had good confidence in my playing yeah and i don't try to play things that i'm still working on you know i remember an old saying um the difference between a pro and an amateur is a pro won't play things they're working on in front of people because it exposes your limitations. Right now, I've got limitations. Huh. There's okay. things I can't play well. Yeah. And, you know, I'm working on it. Yeah. But I make it a point to not do that with an audience. Right. So well, they're not watching me yeah. at the edge of my ability. I'm just looking super accomplished. Yeah. But so you actually, I mean, because it's funny because you hear you talk about the glam rock and like I heard stories about Poison where, you know, they came out and they looked really cool. But when they first started, and some people would argue even still now, they didn't sound that great because I don't yeah. think they put as much emphasis on the music, whereas you were just really putting it on the music you were not putting it on your the look as much you weren't getting the bandanas and the it, spandex we were like anti-poser yeah <laughs> which is its own kind of poser sure i sure. mean i look back we were just as young and dumb and we enjoyed judging the other yeah. people but from across the street we must have been fun to point at too look at them all their black clothes and their long bangs and their yeah. you know their high tops i mean you know everyone had their little clicks so we weren't better than anyone but but we were certainly enjoying the 
the tougher guy attitude. Like we don't, we don't need all that stupid shit. We're just give us me, give us a four count. <laughs> you know, we're a metal band. Yeah. So there was a cool attitude about it. And, uh, you know, I'm not sorry about any of that. No. And so that album, uh, released ignorance, uh, revolver may, I don't know if you knew about this, probably did, but, uh, in August, 2014 revolver placed the ignorance on its 14, uh, thrash albums you need to own list. So it's definitely still getting attention, you know, years later. There's yeah, just this week. It was added to another list. Like, oh really? Um, top 40 best debut records in thrash music. And it was, uh, not crying. Shit, what was it? It just came up in my feed. I'll take a look. Okay. Yeah, and then, so that that obviously got you guys some attention. And then, so why did you decide to do the uh, Surf Nicaragua? Why why was that one just an EP? How, I always wonder with that um, kind of thing. We, why not make a full were, album? Or? We were staying busy touring, and we, okay. didn't, we didn't have a lot of songs. Mm. So instead of making an excuse to not go on tour... We thought, well, we'll put out what we have yeah. and, and stay busy. Okay. And that was, we just didn't have the material and we were staying busy and didn't want to park. There was something exciting going on. Okay. We, we were out, we were hitting Europe, we were in tour buses, we were starting to do it. And um, coming home to write for six months and then record for two or three months was like a bad idea. Yeah. No, no one, not the label, not us. No one liked it. We just wanted to stay busy. We had a couple of these songs. Um, it turned out to be great um, just because the, the record did really well. The song is probably one of our most popular. If you go on YouTube, it's probably got more plays than any of our other songs. Right. Um, it connected with a lot of people, and it put us right back out in the field. And the artwork was really cool, too. I think you have that record hanging up in your restaurant, right? I do. Yeah. Yeah, and it's got the uh, special seafoam edition you know with our beach beach vibe over there oh that's very cool yeah it's very cool so and that was uh you i didn't really i didn't realize i was listening to an interview today with phil and uh he talked about how you guys have that that the person in the uh surfing in the on the cover of that is is called it's the mascot it's odie is that the, his yeah. name his name i didn't know you guys had like a mask i kind of like iron maiden has eddie and yeah we uh at one point we had a competition where you know name name our dude okay and um there was a lot of fun ones one that came in that i liked was warren peace like war, <laughs> war and peace um but in it's the good. end we didn't choose we didn't choose anyone and we always were saying you know help us name our dude oh. od okay. so finally we just started calling him od for mm. our dude it lacks some creativity but it makes sense <laughs> no and that's funny it just felt right and uh, uh i think we there was a stereo and a record collection we gave away to somebody but oh, we, that's cool. we, we didn't adopt the name we just kind of randomly picked one of the one of the people and yeah. that was loudwire loudwire that, okay that, yeah that recently uh so another treasure top 40 catalog. Most best thrash albums, or is that what we said? Um, including us in the 40 best debut thrash albums of all time. Loud, oh, for sure. Loudwire yeah. magazine. Absolutely. So that was really cool. So around know? it's around this time in 88 that you guys go on tour with uh, Motorhead. That, that must have been a pretty big step for the band. Um, I had the guy from Dangerous Toys on my show, and he was... They toured with Motorhead as well, and he, he said that Lemmy was cool, but I don't think he was a fan of Dangerous Toys as much. Was Lemmy a fan of your band, or he was a little intimidating in the tour? <laughs> and uh, I think our yeah. first our first show, something happened where they got in late and they wanted to go on earlier. They didn't want to be the they didn't want to go on last, so we had to play after them, mm -hmm. and it was horrifying. Wow! It was a probably I don't know five or six thousand seater and it, i imagine 85 90 percent of them left when they were done it was a motorhead show uh, it was, sure, our, it yeah. was our first trip to europe um a record was new we were still building our name we didn't have the pool to keep everyone in there 
And it was horrifying watching them kill it to a, you know, packed room and then going on to a couple of people <laughs> yeah. right up at the front. Um, but it was also, I look back at it and it was a great way to cut your teeth and, and get in and learn to roll with the punches and understand that, you know, expectations aren't always met. Right. Somehow you got to get through it. Well, that's a lot of times when you're the opening band anyways, that people are still filtering in and sometimes it's the lights are still on yeah. and, and, and it's and a they, different you, vibe, make, you make lemonade. Now it's yeah. that time we look back at it. It's the time that motor had warmed up for us. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like? Did you have a lot of interactions with Lemmy? I mean, you say it was intimidating, but I, did he did did, you ever get uh, to sit down and have dinner with him or anything? Or? Um, there was a couple times, you know, during catering at the clubs, we weren't going out to dinner and hanging out at the hotels on our own time, but, but at the venues and sound checks, there was some interaction and uh, it was, it was a slowly building thing, but he, he warms up and, they're really cool. Mm. Um, they're loud as fuck. Felt like there was a lot of speed around. Seemed like everyone was amped out all the time, and, and you can kind of sense it. Big pupils. speed, like the drug. Yeah. Like, oh, like I don't know, cocaine, meth, something. Okay. Um, did you do any? Did you get into any of that stuff? Or I did. It was it was later. Okay. Um, but I did. I, I would call it a problem that I had there for a little while. Wow. It was a little less than a year, but it certainly grabs a hold of you. I got, okay. I got friends who got into it around the same time who never really got out. Ooh. For me, it went about a year, and I, I just I'm thankful. Uh, one day I got out of the shower, I looked in the mirror and didn't recognize myself. <laughs> Scared the shit out of me. So I was properly motivated. You know, I think the old saying: if someone's having a problem, they need to want to change. Sure, you know, yeah. You know, uh, we don't get better because mom's worried about us, and we don't go to heaven because grandma went to church. At some <laughs> at some point, you need yeah. to take control of what's going on and get yeah, shit enough. So I feel really lucky. I look back, evidently, it's really hard to get off that. <laughs> yeah. I, I started out with some, with Coke, and then I ended up playing with meth, always snorting, never smoking or shooting, but still crazy. I remember just wasting time talking about things that we would never do. It's, just, mm. it's a horrible way to spend your time amped up on that stuff. So Motorhead was doing a lot at this time, and you didn't really it, it did seemed, you understand that? I, I didn't quite okay. understand, and, and, and maybe it's, you know had a hand in me playing with it later. You got to, you know, trying to fit in and, and do what the, uh. what, the, what the big kids did. Um, but, uh, it was a, a really great first experience and we really felt welcomed by them by the end of the tour. It yeah. was kind of a hugs and, you know, almost like noogies. Like we were the, we were literally teenagers. Did you keep in touch with Lemmy at that point? Or you kind of, I hear no. a lot. Yeah. So that's what I, this seems very common. A lot of these tours, you're like brothers and then you just go your separate ways. And, it's true. A lot of ways. And, and yeah. I'm particularly uh, bad that way. Like my mom's got to call me and go, Hey, are you all right? I get real what's in front of me, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, it's a, that's not a trait I love about myself. Hmm. And I admire these people who are really good about, you know, birthday cards, calls on significant days. And yeah. you know, I've got a few friends that way. And it always blows me away that they can be so present, you know, and it's, it's a, or they just it's, put it in their, they put a reminder in their however phone. That's what I do. However they're doing it. <laughs> I'm cheating. It, it's, so. it's inspiring. Yeah. You know that because there is a huge value in, sure. and the connections we make and keeping them. So, Absolutely. So I always enjoy and I always like to think when I see someone, I can pick up right where we left off with, with authenticity. Absolutely. Uh, but I can also go three or six months without talking to my brother. <laughs> you get distracted. You yeah. get work. You no, know, that happens. Chasing your tail. Sure. And, and, and you know, you just kind of lose track of time. Yeah. And it's been that way too uh, over the years, touring with some great bands. Um, you know, we did a killer uh, Pantera tour. Oh, yes. Vulgar display of power. Tour. Yeah, we'll get to that. But so before, so after the Lemmy tour, then you guys released the American Way, 1990. That one actually charted on the billboard and all that stuff. And then you guys did, in 91, you did the 
another tour, New Titans on the Block tour that was called, right? It was Sepultura, that- Napalm Death, and Sick of It All. Sick of It All. Yeah. And um, I heard Phil talking about this saying there was a lot of fights and riots on this tour. There was one show in particular he talked about, I don't know if you remember this one, where you guys played in Gallup, New Mexico, which surprised me because I didn't know they had concerts there. But the mayor actually protested this show because he was a religious fanatic and thought you guys were devil music, something like that. Sure. And so they actually cut the power in the middle of the show during Sepultura. And Max, the singer, got on stage and said, let's destroy this place. But everybody had video cameras. So the cops, and this was right after Rodney King, I guess. So sure. the cops were very hands off at this point. Do you remember that? Yeah, our manager almost got arrested that night. Um, we were we were all getting uh, passionate, and um, the police seemed outnumbered. So we were kind of bold and like you know telling them how it was going to be, and they were reasserting that hey, we're the law, and we're telling <laughs> yeah. you this is a-. and and uh, without us complying, um, they did pull the power, and then that created a almost a riotous vibe. It, it fell short of, of too crazy. Was this but outside or was this in a uh, concert venue? It, it was in a concert venue with oh. like a big outdoor smoking area. Okay. And it seemed to keep pouring out just to outside the venue. And um, especially once the music stopped and a lot of the fans were outside yelling with the police mm-hmm. and you know, the police, it was an awkward situation. Like you said, I didn't really do the math of the timing of video cameras and Rodney King, but it did seem like they had their hands full and were being a bit reserved. Like, Hmm, how do we assert ourselves, right. but not burn this place down? Yeah. And it was a, it was an interesting, an interesting night. Um, the, the mix of bands that were out there had a mix of fans Hmm. And as you got into uh, some geographic locations, I remember, I think it was in the Boston area, where there was a strong punk rock vibe. Sure. And um, apparently a lack of tolerance from these skinhead punk fans for long-haired metal guys. Oh, boy. And there was, some, there was a few times where we'd have to stop our show because we could see some big guys with suspenders, Doc Martens, and shaved heads standing in the middle of the pit and you can see them communicating. They'd pick somebody and then just beat the shit out of them. Jeez. They'd start out acting like they were slam dancing with intentional elbow, mm-hmm. elbows to the eye socket. And then it that's would work, it, it would work yeah. into stomping people who fell. That, that's interesting. I remember like going to shows back then. I don't know. Does that still happen with the, the pit and everything? Because that was a big thing of moshing. Everyone would run around and just push each other. But you know, there'd always be elbows to the face and people... It, it seems like it's gotten a lot more peaceful. Yeah. Um, um, it's really... Well, people get old, enough. right? I mean, you can't go out there and mosh when you're in your... 50s and yeah, 60s. Well, there's still young people doing it. I mean, in between clubs being uptight with liability and, yeah. and paying security to try to minimize it, um, there, there are still times when you can appreciate and experience a good old school pit. Um, we played with uh, violence at uh, what was that, the, LA, was the LA show a year or so ago, and security just let them up. And they were amazing, and it was the most old school vibe. The pit, and if someone fell, someone would go like you know, put their uh, arms out and yeah, keep space, that's cool. while when someone you... else reached in and would yeah. dust, dust their butt off and give them a <laughs> kickback. Um, you know, they stand around. Uh, someone starts looking abused. People would come and protect them. Um, it was a great old school 
safe vibe. But, yeah, but, that's good. But still a major aggression outlet. Sure, sure. Um, definitely in those early days, I remember seeing some violence in the pits, which we were never down with. We weren't like, oh, yeah, you know, F yeah, bust them in the face. That was never Do you stop playing if you see something that looks too scary? We, ha- we have several, okay. several times over the years wow. um, just to try to get them to stop or to enroll people who are watching to stop watching and help. Right. Um, probably uh, three or five times over decades where we left the stage to jump in the crowd to... Wow! Like not, not feeling like we could stop it verbally. Yeah. So physically, and security wasn't doing enough, or yeah. Sometimes security is part of the problem. Oh, um, I yeah. mean, there's, there's a lot of variables that you can run sure. into out there. But I remember a, a couple times uh, we were, God, I want to say Rochester, somewhere in New York, and having a great show, and the stage drivers were going crazy, and the security was being rough, throwing them back in the crowd hard, um, you know, twisting their arms behind their backs, open hand slapping. So uh, Phil said, you know, you guys need to mellow out. So more of it went on, and he demanded the security leave the stage or else we wouldn't play anymore. Wow. So after an awkward three or five minutes, the security kind of cleared out, which opened the gates to major stage diving. <laughs> and then slowly a uh, security head of security, who may have been in another room watching cameras, comes out like, He's mad at a security team. You don't allow someone here on Friday night for four hours to make your, they're not your boss. Right. Yeah. They can't tell you to leave the stage, you know? So he was losing his mind at his own security, got fired up and wanted to know who told his security to leave. So we, we finished our set and there was some, it was a, a bit of a melee. The, the kids went absolutely crazy once the security was gone. So I don't know, there may or may not have been some damage to the club. Um, oh, not, not, not vandalism, but certainly free range stage diving, maybe some sure. spilt drinks on electrical stuff, who, you know, <laughs> le- less God. vandalizing and more just a byproduct of people Damage, going crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy times. And, and then he wanted to talk about it. And there was like almost a band and crew versus the security thing going on off the back of the stage. They got mm-hmm. a little bit spooky, a bunch of, big sporty looking steroid guys and a bunch of stone skinny long haired and heavy metal kids we're like i don't like our chances yeah. of course we had the, the big six d cell mag lights you know the yeah. old school ones which are ouch pretty pretty amazing yeah. so we're surrounding ourselves with the tools if needed so you're doing the tour and then 92 uh you guys got on the encino man soundtrack so was that just a coincidence because you're on hollywood records and the movies hollywood films so Absolutely. they just, is that what, it, they didn't Absolutely. talk to you about it or they just grabbed it. and they actually played your music video, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the Encino man, he comes, he thaws out with the kids are at school yeah. comes and he steps on the remote and then it's like, uh, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back a little scene. And then he hits the remote and it's, uh, I don't know, 30, 35 seconds of the American, American way. Yeah. And, um, Hollywood records, we just signed with them, uh, preparing to do the independent record. Yeah. And I believe they had gotten the rights to the American way. It must have. Yeah. Record as part of these bringing Trying us. Trying to. Yeah, help you guys and, out. And, it's and cool. then, yeah, I think they do better when they can use in-house bands. You know, they might sure. get a better rate, or they're or they're promoting oh, okay. promoting sales for something. You know, it it it's just it behooves them to use their own talent whenever they can. So we were really fortunate on the timing of that. They ended up being a classic that's played replayed several times a year on several different stations. Do you guys get like a royalty every time it's played for that 35 seconds? Or? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not uh you know, crazy significant, no. um, but you know, uh, some of, some of the old work we did, it's not unusual to get five or $700 every three or four months for shit that I did when I was wow. 18 and in 86, 87, you know, it's just pretty amazing. That's crazy. Yeah. So yeah. Cause you, then you, in 93, you did the independent record. 
Um, and I think, would you say that's kind of like your commercial peak at that point? I mean, they played the independent that's, that's when I discovered you guys. Cause I, um, I heard the end. I think I saw the independent song. I must've seen it on headbangers ball. And I went and bought that album. And I guess the song was also on the program soundtrack and the son-in-law soundtrack. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that was kind of like, you guys were doing pretty well. We were, finally, we were finally on a major label. Yeah. Um, uh, Peter Paterno, who was our lawyer, ended up being the president of Hollywood Records. And that's when we transitioned mm. over there. And we got a, a sweet deal. The same guy who negotiated all our other contracts with Metal Blade and Enigma was now writing up the contract for his wow. own label. Yeah. So it was really nice. Unfortunately, he got fired. And, and short, oh. shortly after we got fired or, or let go. Oh. Um, so, but, but it was an exciting time. We were, we had a major label. Um, you know, we'd go visit Peter at the Disney studios. Uh, it's, you know, Hollywood records is owned by Disney. Okay. And, uh, what, one of, of probably a couple of things besides we didn't perform as well as they would like to see at a major record label, you know, we weren't gold and platinum. We were a uh, couple hundred thousand records over. A, okay. They, they want to see explosiveness or what are they, what the hell are they doing? Right. Right. Uh, which you got to understand their, their business model is different than an independent who's sure. like metal blade is, is Slagle's a metal fan yeah. and he understands these guys don't do records if someone like him doesn't do it. Right. And the expectations appropriate. And then when someone sells a hundred thousand records, mm -hmm. it's like drop the confetti. <laughs> you know, it's a big deal. Yeah. And uh, so, so it's a different vibe. We went from, you know, being celebrated to kind of like being the troubled stepchild <laughs> and, you, you, and you can yeah. feel the expectation and you know, when sure. you're falling short. So that was, it was an awkward, time we we're throwing a lot of money at it and um, we had a, a plenty of support i look back at that time i'm not mad at anybody we were given the perfect opportunity i think we failed on our own merit for, what, <laughs> for whatever reasons we uh, didn't appeal to you the think masses. that you count as a failure though no no i mean you know uh, not being able to do the next record and and being dismissed from the label mm -hmm. was a bit of a fail Okay. There, there was an expectation we didn't meet. Yeah. You know, fail is a dirty word. I, I don't, yeah, because I, I, I don't lose a lot of sleep. I'm every not, band, I'm not mad at yeah, anyone. there's a, there's a, I mean, I'm sure there's thousands of bands that would love to have even one video played on MTV at that time, or being one video, you know, one song in a movie, or uh, the tour with Pantera. Let's talk about that. That was must have been a fun tour. So, tell me what it's like to tour with those guys, like back in the prime of. I mean, I saw, I saw Pantera. I must have not seen him with you guys opening. I don't because I don't remember that, but. Uh, I mean, that must have been pretty crazy. I've seen videos of those guys like in a Skid Row video where they're, you know, just they just go crazy. Right. I mean, what, what was it like they're, backstage? They're hard to keep up with uh, <laughs> their, their ability to drink and smoke and party and, and uh, you know, sleep all day and party till the sun comes up is is not a story. It's a truth. They, they were amazing quality dudes. A lot of love. Um, we didn't. We, you know, it, over the years, I guess in, in any situation, drama can poke itself up, but they were really gelling as a team. Mm -hmm. their, their performances had an authenticity level that I had not seen a lot and I'd already been touring for a while. It was kind of a stop and watch like, whoa, when you're all on the same page and you don't talk about it, you just do it and it just kind of arrives. Um, like, you know, they weren't talking about, okay, then this part of the song, you come forward and I'll fade back. And like the, the whole stage presence. Yeah. Uh, inevitably, as stages get bigger and you're, you know, a set list you should think about. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. People waited in line, got a shirt. You got to bring them on an experience. So it's not unusual to have a discussion or try to anticipate how you're going to deliver an experience to your fans. But these guys were so organic and authentic. And from night to night, there were some key points that would 
this, at that time, it was great to act that way. But there would also be really big switch-ups where it wasn't the same language every night introducing the song mm-hmm. and standing in the same place. It was just real organic. That was one of the huh. things I picked up on early that was influential. Um, you know, Dimebag was already a guitar hero. Sure. And, and being able to pal around a bit and uh, watch him close from on stage was amazing. And just how effortlessly, you know, he didn't spend a lot of time looking at his guitar. He could spin it off his side, you know, just an extension of his person, you know, almost like you see a kid who's really good on a skateboard, mm-hmm. like this, they can't fall off it. They just stick it on the wall or just grind it down the rail and flip, flip. It all, it's almost like watching that with him. And, and I like to think I'm an okay player. And it was amazing for me to just kind of witness that. And, uh, you know, all these years later, it's, it's, it's no surprise to me that he's joined the, you know, the historic oh, significant yeah. guitar player. Absolutely. He will, yeah. he, he's immortal. Yeah. You know, he's, he's joined, you know, like the Randy Rhodes, you know, for taken, sure. taken too soon and a serious body of work left behind Absolutely. For, for many people to be inspired by. So what was what was some crazy? Do you remember? Is there things that stick out like stories or crazy things happened on that tour? Yeah, um, a, f- a fun one. I think it was an Ohio Hera Arena. It was the last last night of the tour, and um, we toyed with you know. I wonder if it's cool to do some pranks on stage and stuff. Oh boy! <laughs> and um, we were playing for a while, and we were noticing that they were doing something on the side of the stage, and then there was some silly string and. Um, it started ramping up and then they kind of disappeared. And I remember we were three or four songs in and I was thinking, well, I guess that was it. We got some silly string. It wasn't so bad. And then I'm noticing the front row of the crowd are looking past us, pointing and laughing. So it took me, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds. Finally, I turned around. I'm like, what is going on? They had dropped a backdrop over our backdrop, like taped some sheets together. And it was a skull similar to our dude. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it said, suck it right. Or, <laughs> Belch it right. Some play on the words. I don't remember exactly what it was, but uh, it was some sarcastic shit. And then it had a bunch of funny stuff written all over it. So here we are oh, you know, that's cool. trying to act tough and play. Yeah. And meanwhile, our whole backdrop. And then and then it, it started to progress from there. At one point, uh, Dimebag came out and it was like hard to hold on to my guitar. I didn't know if he was trying to take it from me or what was going on, but, but it was crazy. And in retrospect, I think they were distracting me because they put about 10 pounds of ground beef over my MIDI pedal. So, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a foot controller for your amp. You can go, you can go from clean channel to your dirty yeah, channel yeah. to your lead channel. and there's Distortion a, there's, and all that. Yeah. There's, a foot, there's a foot controller. So it's on a MIDI cable. It's run out to the front of the stage. And a, a guitar solo came up. And I, I was kind of like, <laughs> I was looking for it. And the lights are flickering. So that sometimes they can be hard oh, to find. No. So I went back to the amp and I followed my the cable, the MIDI cable, yeah. figuring there should be a pedal at the other sure. end of it. And it led to about 10 pounds of ground beef. So I tried to kick some of the beef off of it so I could see <laughs> where the buttons were. And then I started stepping on buttons. And the funny thing about that is three or five days later, 85 uh. degrees in the back of an equipment truck. It was like quite the stinky uh, ex- science experiment going on in my foot uh, controller. But it still worked and everything? Yeah, it, wor- it worked good. And we got it. Uh, we ended up disassembling it and, and getting a proper cleaning internally on it. Um, okay. To this day, I've still got those Marshall cabinets that were on that tour. And, and wow. one, one thing that's really cool about them is there's ketchup stains um, from Dimebag. And, and uh. he'd come out, he had like cap gun holsters, and then he had a, a mustard and a ketchup okay. bottle. And I saw him squirting people. And yeah. in my mind, it was that, you know, the ketchup bottle with the red string and the knot. 
and you and everyone flinches, sure. but, but it's not really catch up. Sure. So I was laughing. Yeah, right? yeah. I'm like, oh man, these guys got all kinds of tricks yeah. up their sleeves. And then he came by me and I just kind of stuck my face out, like, go ahead. And it was ketchup. <laughs> it was real ketchup, and it was not like, whipped okay. across. I remember oh. wiping my neck and it was like in my hair. And I'm like, what the? You smell it, smell it. It's fucking yeah, ketchup. Yeah, those guys don't fuck around, no. No, it was a real deal. And then uh, there were a couple other nights where, you know, they'd hang out and there'd be some diehard fans after the show, who'd sneak around to the back by the buses. And there was a kid who was just really loving hanging out with the band and he had a Camaro. And I'd be like, can I drive it? He's like, fuck yeah, man. Like, had no hood on it. It reminded me of myself. Like, car had no stereo, <laughs> but all the chrome from yeah. the local Checker Auto parts. <laughs> no hood because it wouldn't fit because, you know, the big, big fat air filter and uh, smoking pot watching Dimebag run donuts around this <laughs> parking lot. It was, was uh. a, a, another fun thing. And then, you know, that night we signed a car. It was kind of like the first time I ever signed a car. That's we, pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. So like this great high, you got the uh, songs on the movies, you got your videos on MTV and then you're touring with Pantera. And then all of a sudden, what they just dropped the record company drops you. What happened there? Yeah. We, we, uh, just, they thought they would expect you to sell. There was some more time. Millions records. Yeah. Things were still going good. And, uh, after the Pantera tour, there were other fun tours. I can't, I can't remember exactly what they were off top of my head. You're doing better than me with the timing. Um, but there was some more time that went by and I think it was probably 96 was the hill record mm-hmm. and, and we, uh, lost Greg, our drummer and Dave McLean came in from machine head. Yeah. He later yeah. would join machine head. Yeah, correct. So we were in this weird transition and, um, I remember metal was struggling a bit. Um, mm. The the Seattle grunge scene was coming in and, and dominating attention and sales yes. and Nirvana, and and a lot of people were like, "Geez, you know, what way forward? Did maybe we were a little too late? Like mm. we were, there was this prime metal spot, mm. and we got the the tail end of it." Yeah, because uh, at some point, I think it was ninety five, ninety six, they canceled Headbangers Ball, and this is before YouTube. So I remember staying up until whatever it was two in the morning watching yeah, metal least, videos on MTV. Midnight, that was the only yeah. time you could watch it. And so when they canceled that, I was like, well now how do I find out about bands anymore? Like it was just really so, bizarre. So you're seeing a decrease in record sales. You're yeah. seeing a decrease in ticket sales. We were going back to club, you know, it's like you, you start out, you, you go on your first tour and you're playing, you know, 60, hundred seat, you know, bars across the States pulling a trailer in your 10 passenger van. And then you finally you get to this 1500 or 3000 seat, you know, larger club or, or small, uh, you know, arena looking things. And then you think you, you sell to yourself. Wow. It's working next stop Coliseums. And then, and then you kind of backstep like, is this that club we played a few years ago? Mm. And, huh. and it just wasn't working, you know, uh, it, it seemed like we were going, we were going, we were going. We plateaued in a in a very respectable place. We plateaued, mm-hmm. sure, yeah. but but not meeting our expectations. So or the, so, so, record there, so there's a frustration, yeah. yeah, and even internally. I mean, you're trying to stay mm-hmm. enrolled mentally. It's it's tough work. Sure, uh, the first couple of years are a lot of fun, but it, it, you start to learn that. Wow, I, I live out of a bag. <laughs> um, did you guys have a tour bus at that point or did you rent one or how does that um, work? Yeah. By, by independent and all that. Um, we didn't own one. We'd always rent them, lease, okay. lease them for the tours. Oh. And, uh, but it was comfortable traveling and stuff. Um, uh, it's a great 
way to, to, to live life, you know, especially when you're in your 20s, traveling around in a rock band mm-hmm. every night. And you guys did world. I mean, you were all over the world, right? Not just U.S. No, it's true. Uh, we spent a lot of time in Europe. Um, later, we ended up in South America. And then um, we've still never been to Russia. Hmm. We, we did go to Australia, New Zealand. Uh, haven't been to Japan. Um, so there's still some places we haven't seen that we're so excited the, yeah. to network. But around this time in the mid-90s, the popularity of the band uh, waned a little bit, and then you guys were dropped from the record. You did, you hadn't necessarily quit the band yet, cause, but in 94, you took, is this true, around this time, you took a job as the director of purchasing for Oregano's Pizza, and then you, you ended up staying at, you worked at Oregano's for 18 years. It's true. and But you're still in the I, band I, for the I, first six years of that job, it, right? Yeah. Um, I would kind of take off for a couple months to tour, and then I'd come oh. back and say, okay, if you guys need help. My wife would get pissed. I'd sit around all day. She was working full time, and when I'd come home from tour, I had about two weeks to relax, mm-hmm. and then it drove her crazy that I was sitting around smoking pot, playing video games while she was at work. <laughs> you so, kind of earned that though. So I, so saying, I right? started yeah. going, uh, I had friends that I went to high school with that were over there. A, a gentleman, David Leonard was the kitchen manager over there. So he hired me and I came in as a cook for minimum wage. I was a prep cook. And then I worked my way, uh, in, into a pretty cool position. There was one location. Then by the time I left, we had opened about eight, eight locations. And, uh, I ended up with an office gig in an executive position. So why did you take that job though in 90? Cause I mean, you're still, I know that, you know, the band maybe had waned a little bit in popularity, but you still had a pretty good resume as a guitar teacher. Why didn't you, or, or as, a, as a guitarist, why didn't you take a job as a guitar teacher or something else related to the music business? Were you just fed up with the music business at that point? Uh, I kind of, um, okay. I, I kind of burnt myself out on it. I never felt qualified to give lessons. I'm, I'm self-taught and very untraditional. I don't mind giving some coaching, but I don't have a disciplined theory to slowly unfold and bring someone along you know um i I enjoy playing with people who are relatively new at it and Mm -hmm. and sharing perspective but half the time i don't even know what key i'm in i'm just a real from the hip feeling player um it's funny because like i said earlier i spent the time the discipline with metrodones and that's just hands-on time but what i wasn't doing was reading books or taking instruction Mm-hmm. I was training my hands. I was listening, working on vibrato and, you know, alternate picking. So you don't know how to read music or Mm-mm. that's interesting. I, when I was over in the high- years, yeah. I've accidentally picked up on some stuff sure. just by hanging around yeah. real professionals. <laughs> but most of the, the, when I was uh, in high school, I took guitar lessons and my teacher told me, he's like, yeah, all those guys that you like Angus Young, he's like, none of those guys know how to read music. I was like, and it kind of like blew me away at that point. Cause I thought, Oh no, they're like professional musicians, but no, a lot of them, it's just, they just self-taught. You know, there's different paths for different people. I don't think, I don't really believe there's a right or a wrong way. Mm -hmm. It's it's so individual. I think some people are are really, uh, really suited for for being book smart and and disciplined and learning that way. And then, you know, when when there's a challenge in their life, they can fall back on these these troubleshooting skills that they learned. Um, I, I remember a few times, even in the purchasing job, having unique situations that I'd never faced before. And, uh, I would have to really, troubleshoot and and try to figure it out no one ever taught me this i'd never seen it before mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes i would be jealous of some some of my co-workers who were college graduates who with, with you know bachelors in business they would immediately start like have this point to go to oh mm. well if this happened we should be checking that and, and it was because mm. they were they were taught um, but then there's also been times where i felt like an advantage because i wasn't limited to anything anyone ever showed me 
and would think outside of the box, hmm. not because I was, you know, trying to, just because I didn't have a box. Sure. So, no, so you have to sense. think out yeah. of the box. Well, and you probably learned a lot from what I've uh, learned is that a lot of people that are, you know, with success is that you, you got to fail a lot and learn from those failures sure. and mistakes. And in, in music, uh, like when you're writing, it's such a creative process. It, it, some people are served well by knowing the whole music theory. So it's like, hmm, I got this riff I like. It's in C sharp. I immediately identify these six directions that shake hands well with C sharp. I could go where I don't. Hmm. So I really sometimes the, the the best part of writing or developing a guitar solo for me is stopping and I listen and I start to hear something. And it's not coming from my music theory. It's not coming from my understanding of how notes shake hands. It's, it's being inspired by what I'm hearing, mm-hmm. and it's leading me to the next place. And then I, I'll uh, search for it and find it. And then sometimes I have to train my hand because it's new to me, mm-hmm. and I just bring it up to speed, and it becomes you know one of the things I do. Wow! And and that there's something really uh, organic and natural about that process that I like. Sure, but it's not better or worse. It's, yeah, it's, the, it's different. The, the way I work that 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 works for me, and I like that I'm not considering all my options. I'm afraid that that would be loud, and I wouldn't be inspired by hearing the next part. I would be analyzing my options instead of just kind of emotionally feeling. Well, yeah, that's got to be a big piece of music is is how you feel and the emotion. I mean, sure. Yeah, so you get the band takes a hiatus for about six years, and then you formed a band called The Human Condition with a Saint Madness vocalist Prophet. Um, so, and then for you did the six years hiatus, and then around two thousand six, it sounded like there was kind of a resurgence in popularity. Uh, it was interesting because I heard Phil's take on this, and he said, "Well, you know, we were we were able to kind of get that resurgence because you know our metal was more socially conscious and, and political and not about the upside down crosses and churches, burning cr- uh, churches and things like that. So it was like, I think that was like a big thing that was big in the eighties. It maybe didn't have as big of a resurgence, but with the thrash metal, I think it was a little bit more timeless in my opinion. I, th- I think that that's a fair observation. It's, it's also true that a lot of bands we were out with back then who weren't socially conscious slash political are also enjoying a resurgence. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, you know, cannibal corpse and, uh, overkill yeah and, so uh, these guys staying busy and they're back at it it's 2020 they got yeah. new, new releases no, there's and, all, and there's so and, many and the, it's, it's not that's not you know yeah not their case at all no i know because i I'm, I'm interested in a lot of the 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 glam rock the hair metal stuff and that's even had a big resurgence as well a lot of it is with these cruises and then these festivals which in 2009 you guys did a grass pop metal meeting uh ended up playing you ended up playing this festival a few times and some of the people you play I mean, you played with ozzy guns and roses motley Crue, sebastian bach anthrax megadeth slayer iron maiden black sabbath journey i mean the list goes on and on is there any band that you didn't get to play with that's on your bucket list you know it's just been randy randy rhodes yeah well that would be nice i was a little late but probably would have run into him eventually because like you just noted we did kind of catch up with everyone not at the same level yeah. Uh, you know, these guys sure. are a lot of these bands you're noting that they're, they're playing between seven and 11 <laughs> p.m. Yeah. On Friday night where maybe we were uh, Friday afternoon at 1 p.m. So, yeah. How does that work? So do you even see these other bands at all? I mean, you're still on the same bill, but sure. Yeah. yeah. Like when we go through we're usually these festivals are three or four days, you know, uh, you know, Thursday to Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, something like that. And there's three stages. Mm-hmm. Sometimes these bands playing simultaneous, but they're 400 yards apart. Mm. So it's it's not an issue. And then, you know, I'm a, almost like a big 
warp tour if you mm-hmm. if you ever been okay. to a warp tour i've taken my daughter yeah. a few times and it's like you kind of got to get get the schedule the itinerary of who's right. playing when get with your group of friends and decide who you're going to watch and you might have to sacrifice or make a difficult decision um one, one day uh, i was really upset because i really wanted to see leonard skinnerd who was playing the stage over at the same time as us so in between songs on a couple occasions i was like just give me a second and i was picking things up and i was working on the guitar because i just wanted to hear sweet home alabama another 30 seconds before we got started again um that morning we were in the same hotel Uh, i can't remember i think that was summer breeze uh festival but we woke up in the hotel i got up early and i went down for breakfast and i'm like hey can i sit here and there's some guy enjoying breakfast and i start talking to him i go you, you know you working this weekend he goes yeah i play in a band i go oh, cool me too he goes what band are you playing i go sacred reich he's like oh i think i've heard of them i go who are you playing with he goes leonard skinner <laughs> i'm like no shit i said what wow. do you play he goes I'm, i play piano he goes i've only been with them a couple of years you know so i'm not on the old record or anything but yeah so we sat and we had breakfast and then later i caught up with him and he was kind of my excuse to get closer to the stage yeah yeah. we were playing at the same time but they were preparing and we were preparing and there i just went over there at a golf cart and uh someone gave me a ride over there would you ever want to do that would you ever want to join a a really big band like that like metallica or megadeth or slayer or exodus or something different you know, not not necessarily. I think it would be fun, like uh, like Phil Demel from Violence, uh, when Gary Holt's father uh, was ill, he stepped in for mm. a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I could have done it. I mean, yeah. they, they, Demel, he learned like, shit, 18 songs in 48 hours and then was on stage at Festival Size Crowd. Wow. Pretty amazing what he took on and how well he pulled it off. I mean, I'm not surprised he's a great guy and a talented guy. But, boy, that phone call to me, I would have been full of his anxiety. Oh, my God, it's it's a lot to get done. But I could imagine something like that being a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I really love the band I'm in, so I don't I don't spend good. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about boy, I wish I could be <laughs> how cool would it be to be in Metallica or something. Obviously that would be amazing and, and the success that, that you know is associated with those large bands is sure. certainly welcome. But in the end, uh, you know, I'm fifty two now. Yeah. And I'm hanging around with people I grew up with. We're playing things that we're passionate about. This new record's got a real positive vibe that just really shakes hands with our, our, you know, nowadays perspective. Let's talk about that. So 2018, you guys finally recorded uh, another, I think it had been how many, what, like 26 years or something you had done? Yeah, 25, 26. So Awakening, it was actually recorded here in Arizona in Mesa, a place called Platinum Underground. So how long does it take you to record that? What's the process like? I think we got it done in one month. Okay. And and, uh, there might have been just a little bit of mixing and mastering, you know, after that time. But uh, but all the tracks and most of the the, uh, mixing was done in, what was that, March. Okay. uh, Last year. So So then, and then then you guys get to go on tour with Gore. Can you explain, uh, because for people who don't maybe know a lot about heavy metal or what Gore, can you explain? How do you, I don't even know how to, you'll have to to let you do it because I can't explain what Gore is. It's a very unique concept for metal. Gore is the only intergalactical non human metal band on earth. (laughs) Um, They they, uh, crash landed in Antarctica where they're based uh, and, and under an ice shell somewhere and hidden out um but, but basically they're a lot of fun they've got they're like a party band they're like AT- acdc with makeup on about getting drunk um they're, they're and they have of, these big costumes they're like yeah, foam yeah a lot of blood they, they squirt they blood squirt all over blood the crowd and, and, and all uh, sorts of things that it's like a, a real 
experience you know like earlier yeah. we talked about you know there's a beginning and a middle and an end yeah they, 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 there's certainly an experience and they they stay tied to your current events so there's you know there's trump stuff in there there's uh legalized pot stuff in there but it's usually done with like a sarcastic humor okay and and at, at times it's just and some of it's tasteless out, right rude yeah, yeah i think my friend saw them and it was during the john benet ramsey thing and <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I think there's no bounds. I mean, you probably get away with a lot more stuff back yeah, in the nineties. This, this tour, uh, I was caught okay. off guard. There's a Bruce Jenner dressed as a woman cutting a baby, oh, of, of, you know, so it's dark humor. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely politically incorrect. Maybe it'd be, the, and, and a lot of blood. I mean, it's the yeah. first tour I've ever been in where, uh, two hours before sound check, you're covering the whole building with plastic. I never saw that before. What kind of what do they use for blood? Can you say, or is that like a trade secret? Um, it's it's a theatrical stuff. It's water with a powder. Okay. There's a ratio they mix it up in, and then they have these large tanks. They're using um, they're using a lot of uh, compressors and huh. pipes to distribute through, and then the uniform or the the uniforms, the costumes. They have little connectors on uh-huh. them, just like you might yeah. have in a garage for the huh. compressed air, and then they just they're able to blow. It's blow like movie stuff all special over. effects almost right yeah so i mean if you get it on you it's it's pretty watery mm-hmm. um, but it's deep red and it stains closed and mm-hmm. it, it looks you know on the floor it looks like puddles of blood for sure doesn't feel like it blood you know if i'll have to check that feels out. like red water and then there's also green which i think they call slime or okay. alien blood but again if the, the viscosity is so this has got to be worse than just dime bag spraying you with ketchup like did they spray you with the stuff well on they, stage they were headlining yeah and um so we were on a clean stage before they sure. went. And then by the time they went. They and, don't come and, out early and start spraying you ever? Or? No, we, oh. didn't, we didn't have any issues with that. That's and, good. and I think they're also trying to keep the air in the compressors. And they, they've oh, got okay. just enough juice laying around to get through their hour and a half set. Um, what a bunch of great dudes, though. Talented musicians. Um, funny as hell. Um, the first couple shows, I didn't I, like I was aware of them, but I'd never seen them. And I was kind of like, I don't know what the fuck's going on with this. This is a little bit crazy, <laughs> yeah. a little bit crude. You know, and inevitably, my wife and daughter are going to be at one of these shows. I don't, <laughs> I don't even know wow. how to prep them for that. Yeah. Um, but I just told them, just you know, put on your seatbelt. It's crazy, and everyone has fun with it. Um, it's good. Yeah, I, I guess. Ch- I've never seen them live, but I think it would be an experience. For you sure. Check it out. Yeah. Um, stay back if you don't want to get yeah. wet. <laughs> Some, I guess some, so. some people say you got to get it on you to really have the true gore experience. I, I managed to get through the whole tour without getting hit. That's, and that's I, still impressive. Feel, I still feel like I had a, a great experience and, and a lot better understanding. And I softened up on some of the judgmental. That's too crude. I, it took me a little while, but yeah. I, I started to sense the sincere comedic quality, right. the sarcastic exaggeration. Not, not like, yeah, no, I'm serious. Yeah. You know, right. It wasn't like that at all. It was like, that's kind of like a, I don't know if you've ever seen steel Panther, one of my favorite bands, yes. very crude, but you could tell it's very sarcastic and very Satch kills me. He's one of my favorite people to watch on his videos. It's just yeah. the way he stays in character and says, ridiculous yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. He's talking about his new Charvel guitar and uh, how, you know, they got the pattern off a, a panther or something and, and it's like a, this whole funny story and he just doesn't break character right and the, these guitars are so great you know how does it play it plays like butter if you could put guitar strings on butter that's what it feels like and he goes and the cool thing about these is if you ever break a string we'll send you a new guitar <laughs> and i'm like the dudes at charvel are wow. going don't say that <laughs> that is funny yeah, so he's, he's just hilarious. um 
But one more thing about the music. So Phil, I heard Phil talking about you guys' old catalog, that you guys are still trying to get the rights to that old catalog because some of these old records are out of print and they're selling for like 40 or 50 bucks on eBay. Um, so I guess Phil wrote this big long email to the um, record company pouring his heart and soul, the Hollywood record saying, look, I know this isn't a priority for you, but this is our life's work. We really need this. And the response he got back was, you're right. It's not a priority for us. This is just terrible. So did you guys ever get the rights to those old records? No. Ugh. No, it, it seems like we may be finding appropriate personalities. Like we were running into strangers who were busy with other shit and, yeah. and were brutally honest. And you're right. This is not a priority for us. That, that, that really did happen. And it was a, a beautifully articulate letter that Phil wrote. Yeah. You know, appealing. That's sad. It means nothing to you and everything to us. Is there some way we can have this discussion? And he, he did a really nice job of framing up the, you know, a, a reasonable debate about why we should engage in this conversation. And there might be compromise. You know, we need to split the difference. Yeah. But let's get busy with it. And you sure, keep, sure. You keep a piece. Yeah, us, yeah. We'll do the pushing. Yeah. You see if we can create some money for you. But it's such small potatoes for what they're doing. And, yeah. and, and it just fell on deaf ears. And we've been unable to... Uh, to secure the Hollywood record stuff, which is independent. Oh, okay. And uh, a question, which was an EP that we kind of dropped out of ourselves because they were impatient while we were getting independent ready. Like they just signed us and they needed something. Ah. So we, we uh, did the a question EP. So you guys, you still, you can still, I think you can get them on iTunes though and Spotify and stuff, right? Or you just, you guys don't own it. Uh, right. Yeah. Okay. We, don't, we don't have the right to reproduce it and release it uh, and distribute it like through Metal Blade, our, uh, our, okay. our current record label. You know, we wanted yeah. to re-release it. We wanted to print them up, have new ones, sure. get to the prices okay. that you were talking about yeah. now and do a, do a reasonable press. We don't no need to have a million of those laying around. Sure. But even if we just printed five or 10,000 of them, mm -hmm. um, it would drive down that price. We hate the idea of thinking that people are spending some of the some of the things we've seen on eBay are ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's it's a weird, it's a tremendous yeah. compliment to think that something you did so long ago has become valuable. But you also recognize it's because it's rare. Mm -hmm. It's like right. you know, Brazilian ginger root. You gotta really dig for it. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's no. not it's not gonna be cheap. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. But um but th so anyways, besides the the band stuff going back to so you, you ended up quitting the oreganos and then you opened up Rehab Burger in two thousand eleven. You or co owner, I guess it's with you and a couple of the people from Oreganos, right? It's true. Yeah, so um, tell me about that, like because well, well uh, my partners are Ken Likewise and Denise Nelson. Uh, Ken Likewise was the chef over at mm -hmm. Oregano's Pizza Bistro uh, for eighteen years. We all signed up around the same time. I think it was ninety two, ninety four, something like that. And um, Denise was the director of operations. Um, started out, she was the lead server. He was the kitchen manager, and I was a lead cook. Okay. And then as we started opening more locations to duplicate the success of what we had in Old Town Scottsdale, he took his three key people who were responsible for running the shifts in Scottsdale. We went and we opened a Tempe location and we did what we did there and we duplicated the success. So then he started realizing he had a team of people who understood why he was successful. And we started being pulled out of the traditional operation focused on overlooking all of them to ensure that there was consistency and continuity as we got to three and four and five and six locations. So that's how we kind of became executives and took on new titles, director of operations, you know, procurement, uh, director of purchasing, uh, procurement officer, and then, you know, sh chef Ken. Um, so we were having a lot of fun with that. It was, it was really a great experience. I learned hmm. a lot. Uh, like I told you earlier, I was a high, yeah. high school dropout and pretty quick into a record deal touring, 
touring in a rock band when i got done with all that touring my resume was perfect joint rolling and high score on <laughs> nhl 95 yeah not very good for getting a job so uh we kind of worked our way through that and just uh we're surrounded with a cool leader or boss or the owner of oregano's mark russell um now later all these years later that i'm, I'm the owner of a restaurant i recognize one of his superpowers was developing a team and, mm-hmm. then, and then letting them go that's what i was going to ask you about because i read this it says um so i for, for me myself i mean i am educated I, I have a master's degree and i worked on the schools for 17 years nobody ever listened to my ideas ever and this is amazing you listen to the server's and the cooks, anybody can throw out new ideas or new burger ideas. And if and if if uh, the cook likes it, then uh, it shows up on the weekend menu. And if it gets really popular, which I guess the the peanut butter and jelly, which is my favorite burger, yeah, is it gets on the permanent menu. So you actually yeah. listen to your employees. What a novel idea! It's crazy, right? <laughs> this idea that the people interacting, you know, the, where the rubber hits the road, know something about the road. Mm-hmm. that's what it acknowledges you know and, yeah. and we learned that i mean that was one of the lessons we learned is uh we had a boss that that created a team of us and then uh would suggest ideas and watch us fight through it mm-hmm. and then the byproduct would be policy so yes, who was no maybe yeah. this is what i love this is what i hate yeah. we would wrestle through it find ways to mitigate the upsets and maximize the success and then you know it would slowly become policy and uh, that's where we got our confidence over the years that maybe we could do this on our own. Um, Oregano's was continuing to grow, which isn't a bad thing, but inevitably you have to start adopting, you know, more more cor- corporate philosophies. And uh, we were kind of missing a smaller, more agile where we could have an idea Tuesday, have it installed Wednesday. There was this whole, you know, with the logistics of even starting a new menu item, mm-hmm. you needed to project your usages, you needed to mm. get the warehouse stocked up, you needed to educate all the, you know, 21 managers on protocols for receiving new order guides updated. But it not a bad thing inevitable with growth mm-hmm. but we were kind of missing that and um, I, th- I think he was getting frustrated with us like maybe we were fighting the growth a bit mm-hmm. missing the old days where mm-hmm. and uh so there was a bit of a falling out and it wasn't the same you know relationship that we were we were all prospering in so uh, i left first or actually denise left first i left about three or four months after her and then ken was still there and uh we agreed that we all missed each other and we should have a barbecue and just kind of catch up and compare notes. We had different opportunities. We would compare notes. What are you doing? What Mm -hmm. am I doing? What are we doing? And we were talking about our different opportunities and uh, drinking tequila and making (laughs) hamburgers. And there was an old joke. um, The three of us would vacation together when we were working at Oregano's. That was the cool part about not being glued into a schedule at a location is we had some freedom we could vacation together so we usually go to california boardwalk city or go out to mexico get a house for a few days and just barbecue and sit on the beach and uh, an old joke we used to always tell is nobody knows oregano's has the best burgers in town and what happened is we were working on a meatloaf recipe and with french's meats which is here in scottsdale and we identified this blend of bone out sirloin and brisket that just is amazing. Uh, you can cook it hard so it's not pink, but it stays moist. It's a slightly larger grind size. And we would have leftovers from meatloaf with all the Italian. We just hand press some burgers with salt and pepper. And they were amazing. So we would joke. We would ask Francis, hey, hmm. can we get that beef? Yeah. We're going out. And uh, it was a longstanding joke. It was like a manager needed to get a hold of one of us. You can't get a hold of them right now. Where are they at? They're in rehab. 
So these are the two ways. This is where oh. rehab burger therapy came okay. from. It was, huh. we, we happened to believe, we've lived in Arizona a long time, and we happened to believe we were eating the best burgers in town. And they didn't serve these at Oregano's, right? No, it was oh. Italian. And, and the only reason we found that beef is because it was an ingredient in meatloaf. Yeah, which interesting. failed. Which did yeah. like oh, the, we, we tried the meatloaf for three or three or five weeks, and then huh. we, then we yanked it. it just and they never tried the burger though. No, there's nothing to cook a burger on in there. Because oh, you know, it's all ovens, deep fryers, pizza yeah. ovens. You okay, know, there was there was huh. no, no grill, but we were inevitably working with samples, yeah. having leftovers, sure. barbecuing in the backyard. Yeah, okay. And so so you know you fast forward, and uh, we had, we get to this backyard party. We're like. Why don't we just open our own place? We'll call it rehab burger therapy. There you go. You know, escape the daily grind, get the treatment you crave. It'll be fun. And we'll use that burger. We already know it's kick ass. I mean, we've eaten everywhere in town. Right. Chuck Box, Fred Ruckers, and we're restaurant veterans now. We've been at this 18 years, open uh-huh. 10 locations, and we all agree that's the best burger in town. No one knows about it. Yeah. <laughs> so we started working with French's. We got the burgers in line, came up with our logo, got a business plan, got some investors, signed a lease. And uh, wow. this month was eight years we've been open over there. And you guys have how many locations now? Back down to one. Oh, back down to one. Yeah, yeah. We opened one in Tempe that was a, a real struggle. We opened one in Phoenix on 16th Street in Bethany, which was about to turn the corner. Uh-huh. And then uh, we just got hit with, like, everybody else. And we're like, okay, just cling to Scottsdale. You know, that that's the one that we can count on. Created a lot of debt with a couple of failures. Um, I didn't want to do PP loans for three locations and have, you know, $1.6 million in loans. The future is pretty uncertain right now mm-hmm. with uh, COVID and everything else sure. going on. So we kind of like retreated to our safe spot yeah. and uh, are just thankful to have that. So did that location stay open during the lockdown for takeout then or? Scottsdale, yeah. 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 And so you guys Pick are up doing take out o- only yeah. and delivery. We were using Grubhub for delivery okay. service. And you guys are doing okay now that things are opening back up? Yeah. I mean, we, we haven't returned to, you know, pre-COVID numbers and, um. and we just lost baseball season you know you're you're right. a, you're a local here so yeah. you, you know that got we the were, spring training and yeah spring training Scott is Stills. huge and i'm uh, our location is about three and a half four blocks from right. from scottsdale stadium yeah. i can get anywhere from eight to fourteen thousand people in it depending on what day of the week and if they're their big stars are playing that day mm-hmm. and they're just gone uh, i think we had four of 18 games before the season was canceled sounds about right so uh you know I remember the Saturday before the announcement that spring training was was down, we did over $16,000 in sales, which was on par for a good season day. And then the following Saturday, we did about $700. Oh, jeez. Yeah, we were missing like 15 grand in one one day. Oh, my God. And and that that was the beginning of a really scary time where, uh, you know, everyone was... And and because we're fortunate and get busy, we uh, we really don't do a lot of to go business. Sure. So yeah. we kind of spent the last eight years training people. Don't call us for to goes. So we were watching people be busy around us. We're like, what the uh-huh. hell is going on? And then we had to kind of recognize hey, you. You go on a three hour wait, and then someone yeah. calls for ten burgers or even five burgers. You tell them no, right? Because it's going to make your three hour wait a three and a half hour sure. wait. Sure, uh, makes and sense. And people get upset who are sitting in front of you uh, because they can't see what's going on on the yeah, phones. Right. And if they could see, they'd be like, "Why would you let some asshole call 
you know, we don't think they're assholes. So we you didn't do takeout orders at all? We, we would cut them off. Like we okay. would, we would take them when we could, but if at any point the person on the phone could look at the door and see a wait, I'm sorry, we're not doing to goes right now. Mm. And you know, sure. you, you train people one at a time and over a period of eight years, a lot of people got the message. Don't even waste your time calling them. They're, they're busy and they won't do to goes like we'll do midday stuff, uh, early weekday stuff, Monday through Wednesday. There's a mm-hmm. chance you could pick up dinner at seven without an issue. Mm-hmm. But by Thursday night at 6 p.m., we're like, hey, we're not, not doing that just because right. it kills our wait time. Sure. So we're airing on the side of the people standing in front of us who can choke us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, if anyone's listening to this, if they live in Arizona and they haven't tried rehab burger, they definitely should. And if they don't live in Arizona, when they, they put it, need to put it on their bookmarks to come, when they come visit, definitely come check out rehab. I think it's, it's got it. I can't even list all the awards you guys have won from different Phoenix magazines and it's, websites it's been, and things about cool. best burger, best burger in Arizona, not even just Phoenix. Yeah. The whole yeah state. We got some nice national accolades like a USA today, MSN.com, uh, sugar, um, Delish, I think, was one. Yeah, of them, yeah, you know? a lot of a lot of nationals, uh, which is super cool. Uh, we we think that's mostly to do with a, a strong online presence. Um, okay, and a lot of reviews, which you know, yeah. which comes back to award winning food. So there's been a lot of local awards that um, create a splash. Yeah, and then and then I think when these guys, I don't know if they send someone to every state to have a burger i think what they do is they look at yelp reviews they look at you know mm-hmm. how many how many you know facebook followers you sure. got and they have some metric to kind sure. of go like these guys are killing it yeah and and we've gotten a lot of those uh, we were featured on the travel channel food paradise that was pretty cool oh that's very cool yeah there was one day there was an older couple and i was walking through the restaurant and i heard the wife tell the man that's him right there and oh because they saw you on tv or something yeah and i thought to myself man they, Maybe they I, I were a fan. I, I go, I know we're getting older, but they just, I can't believe they're sacred right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so eventually I, I, I heard that. So I knew I would come back. And How say, does that say work? Hello. So they, the, when the travel channel, these TV shows, do they just contact you and say, Hey, we're going to be in the area. We want to do a, a piece on your, yeah, yeah. The, the, they contacted us. They said that, um, you know, congratulations. We had won something recently uh-huh. okay. that, that they're going to be doing work in Arizona, the, the West most Western food. And they're doing a beef section where there's a show that's just all like the best beef in town. Uh-huh. And there was us in two other places uh-huh. that were featured on that particular, they were in Arizona for a week, but on the, on the episode we played on, it was just featured three restaurants for meat. Okay. Uh, yeah. Wow. You know, so, I didn't know that's interesting about the uh, that it came from a, a failed meatloaf uh, project at Oregano's. Yeah, I did yeah. not. That's right. I didn't even know the connection when I, until, at Oregano's that I did, until I did, started doing yeah, my research. Really, it was, it was know, really like, fascinating. Like you know, Oregano's yeah. never saw a burger. Yeah, and no, the, that makes sense. The, yeah. uh, our old boss and the owner of Oregano's, Mark Mark Russell, he doesn't know what I'm talking about. You sure. Know, these were sample leftovers yeah, from yeah. projects in the in the kitchen. And then uh, we learned that it was so good we started requesting it. So over years we would actually buy it from, yeah. from you know, when we weren't sampling anymore. We like, hey, can I get that blend? Five pounds for our own backyard get togethers. Awesome. So yeah. do people ask you more for free food at rehab or free concert tickets? <laughs> tickets. Oh really? Yeah. It's, you know, it's kinda awkward going to a restaurant, hey, give me free stuff. <laughs> But it's it's not awkward. One of the funnest memes through this whole COVID thing is like, hey, right now a lot of your band friends are suffering, so maybe just shoot them a text. Hey, what time you go on? Any chance I can get a plus one? <laughs> just to make us feel yeah, normal again. To make you feel but, normal. Yeah, it was just a kind of a funny meme. You know, a lot of bands aren't working right now. So it was just kind of funny. Like, you know, yeah. make, make them feel warm and just ask what them. What is your take on questions. that with the, with the 
uh, concerts. When do you think that will come back? Because I feel like there's already some live music at small places or outdoors. But I mean, the big concerts, like these big festivals that you guys are always involved it's, in. It's hard to imagine um, that happening before there's a well-distributed vaccine. Um, just that that's crazy numbers, you know, yeah. like the whack and open air festival is like 140,000 people mm-hmm. grass pops, like 75,000 people. And, uh, you know, Hellfest is, is similar. And I can go down the list. There's, there's about 11 significant festivals that we're fortunate to be able to. So you don't think they would do like check people's temperature or some sort of warning, like enter at your own risk. We can't guarantee, or they're well, just going to, it's like this discussion, you know, that we, you know, there's some just, argument about what the percentage of of it is but there there seems to be certainly an acknowledgement that people are asymptomatic yeah yeah so so you know putting a hundred thousand people in a spot just because the temperature was good and i don't know i remember i remember in grade school if i needed a temperature i could hold a penny under my tongue for a few minutes before i went to see a nurse and and Mm. and i imagine that if i needed to get in a concert that i bought a ticket for six months ago and i was sick i would hit eye drops and hold a cool towel on my head and i would bust up i didn't think of that people cheating integrity happened yeah i mean there's just the innocent i feel fine i have no temperature but could be symptomatic yeah so it's just a weird the risk is too high because people don't want to be associated yeah you know they want the news story Ten thousand people got covid at this concert sure and and uh philip's at risk He's got asthma. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's fought uh, diabetes. So, uh, you know, and we're we're early 50s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're not 60 or 70, sure. but we're not 31 or 22 either. Right. So, you know, you, you add uh, asthma and diabetes to 50 years old, and suddenly yeah. maybe, maybe That's we should... That's a little scary. We Can should no- be carrying our Santa Claus. Yeah. Around. So would you guys... Are you working on new music then or writing? Yeah. Trying to get something? Yeah, absolutely. Um, God, we we haven't ruled out this idea. Maybe we could be in the studio by winter. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Um, um, Phil, God bless him, after a, a a huge amount of time, you know, not feeling inspired, has just been a bit of a, a well of, of new ideas and, and music. Okay. And then, uh, you know, we have a, a new guitar player, Joey. Uh, he's 23. And he's been, and uh, he's just on fire, inspiring. He's got lots of fresh ideas, helping us look at ourselves different. Cool. Um, and then, you know, Dave comes from a real disciplined environment mm-hmm. with, with a machine head. Yeah. So uh, it's it's a cool scenario, and there's a, there's a real excitement. So everyone's kind of driven and passionate right now. So at first we were kind of like, what does, you know, we had the whole year pretty much booked, uh, including mm. all the summer festivals mm-hmm. in Europe. Yeah. They're, they're missing right now. And then the early in uh. the year we would have been U.S. with Sepultura and Crowbar. Um, you know, all that stuff got canceled. Uh. So uh, it's been a weird time, but I was impressed within – 45, 50 days of accepting that our plans had changed, kind of switch gears into writing. Okay. And there's a, there's already like five, six solid ideas cooking that could easily just be songs here All like right. in a week or two. Cool. We'll look for that. Um, I always like to end with a charity. I don't know if I, I think I told you, did you have something that you like to work with or the, the organization the one that always comes to mind and i don't do enough charitable work but it's the, the children's hospital sure yeah i have it's a friend a, that works there the one in phoenix yeah yeah i mean that that's when it, when given the opportunity a couple times at the restaurant um there was a couple times i used the scottsdale boys and girls club because i went there and it was uh it was positive for me yeah um but there's in these days where you know everyone's wrestling for insurance and trying to keep their jobs the things they're doing at the children's hospital is just 
absolutely amazing and and how they're there for people cool. and get top quality so i you know and i think that's if i had an opportunity to wave someone in to support someone yeah i'm like don't forget about these guys have been no, doing, that's doing great it thing. right for decades absolutely and can always use help yeah very cool well you've been a part of a great metal band you traveled the world and you shared a stage with some of the biggest rock stars of all time uh, you've been part of two major Phoenix restaurants here. I mean, what's, is there any other mountain that you haven't climbed yet that you want to do? I mean, you said the new album possibly is, or yeah, just more, more of the same. There's not, the there's same. not something specific that I'm pining after, okay. but, but I do feel like I'm, you know, I don't feel like I'm slowing down. I feel like I'm speeding up. I, I feel fortunate at this age, whether it's true or not. I feel like there's still a lot ahead of me that I'm excited about. Cool. I, I don't feel like I'm on the coast side of being the coach and the witness, which yeah. inevitably happens. Uh, I still feel like I'm a participant. I feel, give me the ball, coach. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I, I feel like I'm. I, it's just nice not feeling like I'm on the sideline. Yeah, uh, I just I feel like I'm on the field and I'm part of a of a great team. And every year, two great can, teams, right, with the band sure, and the restaurant. Sure. Yeah, I almost combine them. I mean, they're, they're certainly very separate, but I, I just feel real fortunate to be surrounded by some uh, talented, driven people. And I recognize I can't do anything alone. You know, it, it, it takes a team to see things through, especially things like this, yeah. recording records, distributing them, showing up on places and playing. It is a lot of people got to do their job for that to work. Yeah. And uh, the, the restaurant's real similar. You know, I almost look at the restaurant as a gig. You know, there's this pre-open time, which I liken to sound check, mm-hmm. where they're adjusting lights on the stage and they're check one, two, three, yeah. check one, two. You know, we're getting everything tuned in. And then someone notices the clock. Hey, doors in 10 minutes. And then the lights die huh. and the lights dim. You show you a little bit of your backdrop. You start letting people in. Hey, is merch ready to go? <laughs> Soda's on four. Yeah. Burgers, you know, whatever it is. And then and then the menu is the record. People have there their favorite go. song. Yeah. Every time they come, they just want to hear that song. They don't care about any other song. It's their favorite song. It's their favorite menu items. You can't get them to try something else. You know, we've got other great stuff. Right. No, no, no. I'm going with what I know. So there's, there's that aspect of it, you know, and then there's a bit of a pressure, you know, yeah, enjoy your hits, but you got to come up with a new song. So, you know, trying to be innovative with the menu. Oh, that's um, true. There's a lot of correlations for me, which that's is probably cool. just like my that. perspective. But, yeah, no, but, it's you very know, neat. Like lights, camera, action. There's this work that you do alone with the band. There's the rehearsals. There's the R and D. What it was, you know, what's the art going to look like? What's the flavors? You know, negotiating the cost. What's to go packaging? You know, there's all that, like the T-shirts, the album sure. artwork, the distribution. You know, definitely a lot of creativity in both, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're totally different, but totally similar. And I imagine if I was into more things in life, I would be able to draw the connection there exactly. as well. I think it's always that way. With yeah. it, with any luck, you're passionate about what you do. You're surrounded by some people. You pine in a backstage environment, and then you put on your damn show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for doing my little show here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch. I'll definitely love to come see you. I won't ask for free tickets. I'll, I'll pay for my own <laughs> ticket once you guys do do a show here again. Awesome. Okay. It's nice to get to know you, Chef. Yeah, you too. Thanks. So there it is. Wiley Arnett, guitarist from Sacred Reich, owner of the Rehab Burger in Scottsdale, Arizona. If you like heavy metal, definitely check out his band on all the platforms, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, etc. And if you like burgers, who who doesn't like a burger, uh, and you're in Arizona, you got to stop by Rehab Burger. I recommend the PB&J Burger, but they're all great. I want to thank Wiley for taking the time to come on my show. Super nice guy. He had some great stories and told me some more stories off the record. But I am going to ask his permission if I can see if I can share one or two of those on Patreon. Um, So I just signed up for the Patreon account. Uh, This podcast has always been and always will be free. 
Uh, but if you want a little bit more content and you want to, you don't mind paying a few dollars, um, I'm hoping to provide some bonus content on my Patreon account, uh, stuff that's not on these episodes. And I really haven't done much with it yet, but I'm hoping to grow that just like I want to grow this show. Uh, and, of, and of course, I'm always on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and you can find Wiley as well as Sacred Reich and Rehab Burger on all the social media as well. I want to thank you so much for listening and shoot for the moon.